You feel the need for him? As we sang, did you, was that your confession? That we need him. Oh God, how we need you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we confess. Lord, we don't have it all together. We are out of control. Our lives, um, we cannot, we cannot control our lives. Lord, we didn't uh, choose the day of our birth, and we cannot choose the day of our death. And, and Lord, all things in between. Lord, we are dependent on you completely for everything. I thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, as we open it. These are your words inspired uh, through the pen of men. Lord, but these are your thoughts. These are your words. This is truth. And, Lord, regardless of what's out there in the news, Lord, this is truth. I pray that we will believe it implicitly. And may your spirit now teach us. May your spirit encourage us. May your spirit help us. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to zero in on the word freedom. Now, according to Webster, it means the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice. Or action. Well, it's no secret today that all over the world there is an increasing desire for people to not experience coercion or constraint in their choices or their actions. Would you agree with that? You know, the word lockdown is used quite often in relationship to COVID. The ideas of contact tracing and quarantine, even of the healthy, and even tracking devices implanted in children. I've heard of this. They have offended many people's sense of freedom. Regardless of where a person stands on the issues, whether from a sense of safety of themselves and others or a fear of one's rights being taken away, I think we can all agree that we desire to be free, to not be coerced into doing something that we don't want to do. Now, kids experience this all the time, true? Now, when mom and dad says, do this or else... Does it not give you, if you fit this category, maybe a little incentive or maybe even a little resentment, perhaps? (laughs) This idea of freedom has also affected church teaching. I've heard, and I know that you have as well, those who seem to love the Lord on one hand say, I have the freedom of Christ and I can do what I want on the other hand. Now, these folks may understand freedom, but they misunderstand the other side of the coin that with true freedom comes responsibility. Now, if we don't get those two together, then it's going to devolve into what Webster also says is license and abuse of freedom. If you'll allow me, let me just say one small little thing politically, okay? Any governor who threatens people with house arrest for failing to submit to a COVID test is guilty, in my opinion, of abuse of freedom. Governors who do these kinds of things exercise their freedom to govern, but they seemingly have lost sight of the responsibility to abide by the Constitution that they have sworn to uphold and defend. Well, enough political speech today. But why am I having us zero in on freedom today? Because Paul does. He begins this chapter we're going to talk about today, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 27, 
with the word freedom. And he says a, in a vitally important question, a rhetorical question, he says, am I not free? Now, in this question, it not only sets the tone for this chapter, but it even ties both chapters 8 and 9 together. So it's extremely important we understand what he means when he says, am I not free? Why did he write this? And my prayer is that by the time we finish today, that we will join with Paul, that we will have an absolute single-minded devotion to the Lord. It's a pretty tall order, and I hope that we can do this. For we, too, need to rightly ask ourselves the question, am I not free? In our passage for today, we will see that Paul is not speaking of his personal salvation experience, though the fact he is saved is the foundation upon which he proclaims his freedom. He passionately speaks about freedom in this chapter, and Paul will be telling the Corinthians that he does what he wishes. He is free, but he's not free to satisfy his evil desires. He boldly tells his friends in Corinth, I would rather die than be deprived of doing what he loves and even sometimes is compelled to do, grounded on the rock-solid commitment that he has between him and and his Lord and Savior. What was it that Paul would desire to die over rather than to be deprived of? Why, it was the accomplishment of his mission and the declaration uh, uh, that he had completed it before the Lord. Now, there's something freeing in one's spirit, would you agree, that when a person puts all the eggs of his or her life's purpose in one basket and then pours their life into doing it, Isn't that freedom? When everything in one's life is pared down to one thing, when a man, a woman, a young person has one focus, is that not freedom? Spurgeon commented on Paul's single-mindedness. And he says this, This one thing I do, not these many things I dabble in. What was Paul's mission? What made him free in his spirit? This is what we're going to talk about today in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 to 27. So again, if you don't have it open, please have it open now. We're going to go there. But so we don't forget where we are in the Corinthian correspondence. Paul continues to drive home his point about giving up his rights. For those who were here last week, either here live and in person or Facebook live or even in the fellowship hall, we remember that Paul began to answer a question the Corinthian church asked him about, which is this, what about meat being offered to idols? Now, speaking of meat, isn't it great that we can meet here today? Ha, you like that? Some people call it a dad joke. Other people call it a bad joke, but I like it. Anyway, now, some of us may be a little cautious about having come in today, taking personal precautions. You know, even the handshake and all that kind of thing. Others are staying home, you know, through Facebook Live. I praise God for Facebook Live. Or others are a little more free in this whole thing, this issue, coronavirus. But we can all trust the Lord in this, can we not? Let's not, let's let's all give one another a lot of grace, a lot of latitude about where we stand on this issue. No snarky talk. You know, Grace United is a snark-free zone, okay? Let's let's get that out. No judgment about or directed toward your brother or sister, regardless of which side of the issue that you happen to be on. 
See, it's not just for our own sake that we do this even. How the world needs to see that even with this COVID issue, we as followers of Jesus can still have love for one another, centered on unity in Christ. These things is what we are most desirous of being a part of. This is what we're after here in this fellowship. So by way of review, Paul's counsel about eating meat sacrificed to idols was to exercise humility. And humility is that that attitude that Paul expressed masterfully in Philippians chapter 2, 3 and 4. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Now, some Christians in Corinth believed strongly that idols were nothing, and so much so that they had no qualms of buying and eating the meat that was sacrificed, even though it was used in pagan rituals. Others believed that they ate the meat, their souls would be in danger of hellfire because to them, eating the meat offered to idols meant returning to the pagan religion that they had just fled from. So how to handle this very touchy issue is what Paul is now talking about. And Paul's principle is summed up this way. Limit your liberty for the love of your brother or sister in Christ. Here's Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. If meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat it again, period, end of statement. Well, that's a pretty drastic thing, Paul. Why would you say that? And I believe that he would say that because he hears what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25, 40. He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, Paul was willing to give up his rights, and we are to give up our rights as well. See, Paul expressed his willingness to limit his liberty for the sake of his brothers and sisters, regardless of what issue presents itself in the church. And it comes down, really, to the all-important attitudes of, of, of things like attitude and motive. These are the most important things. See, if I detect in myself or the Holy Spirit convicts me that I'm putting my interest in front of others, that I'm considering myself more significant than my brother or sister, I am to limit my liberty for their sake. See, I'm not to guilt others into doing what I want them to do. Anybody guilty of doing that? (laughs) See, this is ultimately a matter of serving Jesus, is it not? And when I am putting your needs, others' needs, ahead of my own, who am I serving? I'm serving the Lord. So the bottom line is this, limit your liberty for the sake of your brother, for the sake of your sister, to the glory of God. Now, with that, by the way of introduction, let me outline where we're going today in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 27. And we're going to discover what made Paul's heart so free here. We're going to find Paul asking a number of questions to verbally paint a backdrop in order to share his heart and over what he was willing to die for. So what is his backdrop? Simply this, the right he has to expect the Corinthians to meet his material needs as their minister of the gospel. Now, it may appear to be an unusual thing that Paul would bring that up of all things he could have brought up about meeting the material needs, but I think we're going to see that Paul has a lot of brilliance here as he brings it up at this point in this chapter. 
And so in verses 19 and 23, then, we will see exactly what made Paul free and why. We will discover Paul's heartbeat concerning his mission in life. And finally, in verses 24 to 27, Paul invites the Corinthians to join him in single-mindedness that he had. Now, the great thing about the Christian life is that any Christian can do it. Would you agree with that? Some are saying, oh, I don't know about that. Now, don't mishear me, though. I'm not saying the Christian life is easy, right? Now, we get that. It's not easy. In fact, it's impossible without the Spirit's enabling us, empowering us. But what I am saying is that regardless of our station in life, that we can all be like Paul, that we can put the eggs of our life's purpose in one basket and spend the rest of our days pursuing it. It doesn't require a certain job or certain ministry. It doesn't require living in a certain place. But we can all be focused on the purpose for which God has for us. So let's read verses 1 to 18, and let's look at Paul's unusual setting for the stage in order to hear his heart. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are my seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. See, if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Well, that's a mouthful. 
Paul set this whole thing up here to talk about getting support from the Corinthians. So how do he set this up? Basically, in our way of saying it, pay the preacher. This is what he was talking about. See, Paul had the right to expect the Corinthian church to support him in his ministry. But in our hyper-cynical times, when we see corruption among high-profile individuals or even in the political world, what do we often say? Three words, right? Follow the money. Indeed, what issue is pretty much at the very top when it comes to tension-producing events and tension-producing topics in the church? Talking about money from the pulpit, right? But as we know, money can be a sensitive issue. But Paul plainly says, not only does he have a right to expect the Corinthians' support, he is on biblical, foot, uh, biblical ground for saying this. God commanded in his word that God's people are to support their spiritual leaders. And this principle goes all the way back to the earliest days of Israel's history. Remember Joshua? Remember reading his book? It's an action-packed book. Remember the very first battle? As they were entering into the promised land, Jericho was destroyed. And then with the help of the Lord, they went on a military campaign. And by the time they were done, the promised land was subdued. And though there were pockets of resistance, for the most part, the children of Israel were able then to settle in the land. God gave that land in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. He did centuries earlier. But when they settled... Every tribe except one received land. Only Levi was left without getting a region of terra firma as their inheritance. Well, why was that? What was their inheritance? God. God was their inheritance. The Lord told Aaron, the high priest in Numbers 18, that even before they entered into the promised land, here's what he said. He said, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Now, in other words, God set aside the priests from the rest of the people to serve him. They were to spend their time offering sacrifices and making sure that their relationship with the Lord was properly maintained. They were not to be taken up with providing what they needed even to live on. And so God set things up among the Levites that they were to live among the people of God and to serve them. And in return, the people were to meet their needs. And so in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul then poses several rhetorical questions to remind them that Paul was indeed God's servant sent to them. Remember when he entered into Corinth with the gospel, worked among them, and the Lord was pleased to save some of them. And the church of Jesus Christ was, humanly speaking, established through the one man, the apostle Paul, that God sent to them. And the pivot point of this chapter the foundation upon which this passage rests is found in the very first question that Paul asks, am I not free? And the answer is, yes, Paul, you are free. But free in regards to what? And Paul now spends the rest of the chapter laying that out. 
So in verses 4 to 11, Paul continues to pepper them with questions and principles from the Scripture to show them that since Paul gave them eternal things, he has the right to expect his brothers and sisters to help him out and supply his temporal needs. In verse 11, we see him asking this in a straightforward way. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to ask that we reap material things from you? But now notice verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not more? Traveling philosophers and people preaching religious things expected and demanded payment back then, just like in our culture. See, when people offer a service to us to enhance our lives, to enrich us, or even entertain us, what do they want? They want payment. And handsome payment, too, I would say, right? So what is Paul driving at here? He has the right, both from a practical standpoint and divine wisdom, to expect the Corinthians help him and meet his needs. But Paul was talking about his needs here. Necessities of life is what he was referring to. Now, there were in Paul's day, as in ours, those who take advantage of this kind of thing, and they play it to the hilt. It's no secret, is it, that the prosperity gospel heresy exists. It's prosperity, all right, but for whom? Who's becoming prosperous in this racket? Primarily the preachers of this heresy. Isn't that true? But why is it that so many people get taken in by it? Why is that? Could it be that those who follow the prosperity teachers, it's that's what they want. They want the money. They want the prosperity like their teachers have. Sow your seed money, they say, and you can have what I want or have what I have. So goes a subtle or even not so subtle message. But Jesus never preached prosperity. Now, he preached the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, Paul said, I have a right to expect you to meet my needs, not God has given me a vision of acquiring a Gulfstream jet, and I expect you to pay for it. In the second part of verse 12 and 13, Paul then makes clear what his intentions are in addressing his right to ask for support from the Corinthian believers. He said, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In essence, Paul says, though others teach you and receive financial benefit from it, and though they and I have a right to your support, I would put myself out rather than demand anything from you and even receive it from you. I work with my own hands. You remember, Corinthians, how I came to you and I worked by day as a tent maker. And by night, I spiritually served you with the things of God. I don't want to be a burden to you or in any way give you the false impression that I'm in this apostle gig to turn a prophet. And to drive things home, in verse 14, Paul actually ratchets things up, elevating this issue of paying the preacher from a biblical principle to a divine command. He says this, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And that simply means God commands his people to take care of their spiritual leaders. 
But this, and again, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. But if you read carefully, you'll be surprised to know that ultimately this does not even have anything to do with programs and building. It has to do with paying the preacher, supporting the preacher himself only. But with that said, I continue to be amazed at your generosity. Now, we keep the lights on here and we do all these things. We have programs because of you guys stepping up to the plate. It's great. And especially since this COVID thing began, you guys have continued to be faithful at giving to the Lord. It's amazing. Now, it's great that you guys are doing that. But it's even more important that we stay here to establish a witness on this corner. That we have this place so that we can help one another, train one another to become like Jesus. And to gather in a regular, on a regular basis to show the world what it means for a group of people who are vastly different from one another. True? That we can demonstrate love and unity based on the unity based on our common commitment to Christ. And that commitment is literally out of this world, isn't it? It's divinely brought here, supernaturally brought here, and that we can show the world that they can have what we have. That's the point. And then verses 15 to 18, we encounter Paul's vision. What made Paul tick here? In verse 15, we find Paul repeating himself even. In verse 12, I have not made use of my rights to demand that you support me, even though it is the Lord's commandment. In essence, he says, even if you gave it to me, I wouldn't accept it. I try that on many preachers today, right? There is no way, he says, I would substitute mere money for the Lord's reward. And though others may be money motivated, my incentive is simply that the reward from the Lord I want the Lord's reward in the, in the time after and also the privilege of preaching the gospel free of charge in the here and now. See, Paul just can't help it. He must preach the gospel. That's what he said. That was his passion. Whether he does it because he wants to, and that's what he said as well, or he is compelled to by the Spirit. Either way, he must preach. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But again, notice verse 18, Paul's desire, his commitment was that he was not going to, as he said, make full use of my right in the gospel. Rare indeed it was then, and even rarer still, do we find people today committed to the service of the Lord without a financial string attached. Isn't that true? Many of us remember King's players, don't we? It's a great stuff how they came and they transformed the sanctuary to present to us a very good message on how we can more faithfully live to the Lord and for the Lord. But what struck me, though, in our initial conversations and putting this together was that I was trying to convince Brother David to not come here because I cannot guarantee that we could pay him anything. But then Brother David turned the tables on me, and he convinced me that he wasn't looking for money at all. He said that he was going to trust the Lord through the love offering, that the king's players had done this for decades, and the Lord provided. And when we gave the offering, he was literally blown away by your generosity. It's amazing. But what was Paul's motive here? He refused to be paid to preach the gospel because 
He had given up his rights a long time ago before he wrote this letter. Paul was indeed free in Christ. And for Paul, being free means that he was not tied to anything in this world. The only thing, the only one he was tied to was the Lord. He was totally and absolutely devoted and free to serve him, regardless of what people did or did not do to Paul or with Paul. Because he was free from all except Christ, he was then free to be a servant to all. Let's look at verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, again, like a Gentile, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And by the way, so he wouldn't receive and demand of others things like money. He wanted to share in their blessings. But do you notice... The absolute liberty Paul has here. In verse 19, he says, I have made myself a servant to all. Why, Paul? Why did you do this? That I might win more of them. Wait a minute. I might win more of them? Paul, did you just really write what it looks like you wrote? I might win more of them? What did he mean that he might win more of them? Well, simply this. When a person has only God to please, he goes all out. He of his own will puts all of his energies into pleasing the Lord. This is not legalism. This is all-out love for the one who saved him, spelt E-N-E-R-G-Y. See, Paul put all of his eggs in his basket of life's purpose, and he used all of his energy then to pursue what the Lord had for him. It was as though his will and God's will were tied completely together as tightly as possible. And Paul had no other goal in this life. And regardless of what kind of person Paul encountered, he was willing to serve that person if only he might win him to Christ, whether a person was a Jew in name only or devout, whether he was a Gentile, whether he he had a sensitive conscience to things or even a strong person with knowledge. He knew what he was about. He wanted to do one thing, and that was to win souls. That's what God wanted him to do. Now, of course, of course, Paul did not think that his own charisma or his own abilities could turn a non-Christian into a Christian. We know this. He didn't even have to say that. See, Paul knew only too well what it took for him to come to Christ and for him to be changed by the Spirit of God. But Paul's conviction was that he would do everything required to invest his life into gaining people for Christ. Paul's mission was to fish for men, and God was going to do the cleaning. And so what does this have to do with Paul's being free in Christ? In a nutshell, he was free to serve others because Christ had set him free. He was free from crippling fear of people. 
Remember how in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, he came to the Corinthians in weakness and fear and in much trembling. But his fear did not cripple him into inaction, didn't cripple him into silence. He continued to preach even though he had fear. Second, Paul was free from trying to achieve success. Again, when he came into Corinth, he preached Christ and him crucified. It was a foolish message to the Gentiles and it was a stumbling block to the Jews. And Christ sent Paul on a mission with a message that was unpopular at best and dangerous at worst. He knew that if anybody was going to come to Christ, it was going to be not because of his own efforts, but because of the Spirit of God and the power of God invading that person's life. And third, Paul was free to be a servant to his brothers and sisters. That's what freedom in Christ meant for him. And that means in this context, he would be willing to go to any distance to serve even those he described as having a weak conscience. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. See, a man, a woman, a young person can make himself or herself a servant to all if he has only one person to please. And the bottom line here is that if Paul gave up his right to demand that they support him in the necessities of life, surely the Corinthian believers could follow his example and give up their rights to serve their brothers or sisters. So let me apply this the COVID issue with us. Because of how volatile this country is and and this issue is in our country, even among Christians, and I would say even maybe among us here at Grace United, but I'm caring most about Grace United here, I would venture to say that lines are drawn. Would you agree? I would dare say this matter that no one here is weak in conscience when it comes to COVID-19. See, whether we need to continue with a lot of restrictions and for Virginia to lock us all down in the zero phase until we all get a vaccine on one side or on the other side, just let all restrictions go and we just do what we've been doing before. I don't think anyone can be labeled as a weak brother here. I think we all have our strong convictions of this. So my question for all of us is, how do we compare with the Apostle Paul who only had one person to please? How many of us have put our eggs in our basket of life's purpose and use all of our energy to pursue what the Lord has given to you for you to do in this life until he comes back or until we meet him? In short, are you free? Am I free like Paul to serve your brother, to serve your sister who happens to be on the opposite side of the issue but still in the same kingdom? How many of us have committed ourselves to seeing our Christian brother, our Christian sister as people for whom Christ died and therefore have laid down our rights regarding the COVID issue in order to treat one another as the spiritual siblings that we are? The bottom line is that we are to erase any line that divides us and draw the circle around us, showing love and unity, especially amongst ourselves, to showing one another that Jesus lives. He lives through us, and we need to demonstrate this love and unity in front of the watching world now more than ever. And right now, I think it's good that we take a minute and we sit before the Lord and we pray 
about this. So we know that times are hard on us as human beings worldwide, and that's true. For our brothers and sisters in places that are hostile to the gospel, like in Egypt, it's extremely difficult, and it's been that way for a long time because they're Christians. I've been warning us for some time that things are going to get tough on us as Christians in this country. If this COVID thing threatens to deeply divide us, what's going to happen when society really turns on us as a whole, as Christians? Let's consider this COVID issue as an opportunity for love and unity training among us, regardless of the position that we take. So let's go before the Lord for a minute and um, just present ourselves to him and ask the Lord to help us to accept one another, regardless of the position that we stand concerning COVID-19. Let's pray. Spirit of God, do a deep work in our own hearts. Do a deep work in my heart, Lord. Help me, help all of us, Lord. As we look at our brother, as we look at our sister, the one for whom you died, that we would see this person, whether they're on, as it were, our side or on the other side, Lord, that we would fully and absolutely accept one another. Lord, the rhetoric has been so ratcheted up. And I would even imagine that there may even be hatred between Christians over the COVID-19 issue. And the enemy laughs. Lord Jesus, your prayer for us is that we would have unity. The same kind of unity to the same level as you have with the Father. So, Lord, I pray for all of us here and within the sound of my voice that if we know you as Lord and Savior, we would consider unity with our brother and sister as of far more significance than what we feel and what we believe about the COVID-19 virus. Draw us together, Lord, in unity. Don't allow Satan to divide us. And for some of us, Lord, maybe don't allow Satan to divide us any longer. Lord, we will give you thanks and we give you praise for this passage of Scripture where Paul is talking about the issue of these things that are not of of gospel importance, but things that are important nonetheless. I pray, Father, that you'll help us. Lord, that you'll help us to accept one another, to truly love one another, to truly have to give one another grace on this issue and all the issues, Lord, that we can tend to divide over. Because, Lord, the enemy can introduce so many things, and we've divided so many things and over so many issues over the years. Help us, Lord, to truly be united in one as you and the Father are one. In Jesus' name, amen. But finally, though, let's touch lightly 
on the last portion of this passage in verses 24 to 27. See, Paul here invites us to be like him, to be free in Christ. But it's a paradox, though, isn't it? Because the key ingredient to live free in Christ is discipline. It's hard work, single-hearted devotion. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. Paul writes, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, Paul uses a very familiar picture that illustrates what single-heartedness and discipline looks like, that of an athlete. See, the city of Corinth had the Isthmus Games every two years, second only to the Olympic Games in size and scope. Paul in this section invites the Corinthian believers to join him in living out the sold-out Christian life. Christian runner, get at it. Go for it. Get the imperishable laurel wreath to be placed on the head, and that was their gold medal of the day. Christian, discipline your body. Keep it under control. This is how a person continues to put all of his or her eggs in the basket of purpose and pursues it with all their life and all their energy. Don't miss it. Go for it, he says. A.W. Tozer writes, We must face the fact that many today are notoriously careless in their living. This attitude finds its way into the church. We have liberty. We have money. We live in comparative luxury. Well, maybe some of us don't have as much money now. But as a result, discipline has practically disappeared What would a violin solo sound like if the strings on the musician's instruments were hanging loose, not stretched tight, not, as it were, disciplined? It is in the tight stretch of the strings, not the hanging loose is where the potential for incredible music is derived from the violin. May we all be useful to the master by applying all of our energies in pursuit of him out of gratitude for him saving us, that we might give up our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters, for the glory of God and the pleasure of Christ. Let's pray. Once again, our God and Father, the one who loves us, Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died to save us, the one who gave up his rights to be considered equal with the Father, laid aside those, laid aside the glory to come to be a servant to us. Even taking on a human body was an act of service. And then to go to the cross, to be treated the way he was treated. Father, we think of his example, but we think also, Lord, of his power. And Lord Jesus, what you did on that cross. You set us free. You set us free not to indulge our own lusts and and things of that nature. It set us free to serve just as you served. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us. Pray that you'll love us and that we will love you back. 
Lord, help us to, to take what we've learned today and to apply it to one another's lives, looking at our brother, looking at our sister with eyes of love and not eyes of judgment. Lord, teach us how to be unified as you and the Father were. And we're going to thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done and what you are doing here. In your name we pray. Amen.